Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for September 1st, 2019. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, uh, glad to have you all on. Big show tonight, about 20 minutes, we're going to have... Elliot Morris, who's uh, been on the show before, he's of the Crosstab, The Economist, has written for Political Wire and other publications, and he's going to talk a little data analysis of politics and more. Uh, But until then, um, we had a story that at least in Georgia and seemingly throughout the country, if you see the coverage it got on national news sources, it was one of the bigger stories of the week, and that was um, longtime uh, senior – U.S. Senator of the state of Georgia, Johnny Isaacson, is going to um, retire and vacate his seat at the end of the calendar year, and uh, Governor Brian Kemp is going to appoint someone to fill that seat until they have a special election in 2020, uh, in November, Um, so it'll be a special, but it'll be like a regular election because you'll go to the polls when you vote for president and really any other race, including another U.S. Senate seat, which we've talked about on the show, where David Perdue runs for re-election. So it's going to make Georgia a place where you have electoral votes up and you have two U.S. Senate seats um, up, and we can discuss all kind of things from there. But to be fair to Johnny Isaacson, who served in um, Congress, was a head of the state school board, and then U.S. Senator. Uh, We probably need to discuss his career at this point. Uh, Catherine, just thoughts on Johnny Isaacson. Well, you know, I I will admit that the only time in my life (laughs) I ever voted for a Republican was for Johnny Isaacson in 2000, must have been 2006, I guess. Or 2000, yeah, I think it was two. Anyway, um, I have a lot of respect for him. I think, uh, you know, he's done a lot. Uh, his, his role with um, military affairs, he's done a lot for uh, sexual abuse and um, in the military and in the Peace Corps. He um, did vote properly on the new SALT Treaty. Uh, so I do have a lot of respect for him. However, he... Sometimes talks a good game, but he usually votes with Republicans. Um, but I do think he's a seasoned and a reasonable voice in the Senate, and I think that we'll miss him. Uh, so, of course, I'd be much happier with a with a Democrat in his place. So, yeah, Tim, your thoughts? Um. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm with Catherine uh, on, on a lot of stuff there. I've never agreed with, uh, you know, a lot of the stands on issues that the, the senator takes. Uh, when push comes to shove, he, 
he does uh, generally vote uh, the party line. Um, I, I have always found him, though, uh, 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 a decent man, a, a good man, and, and a man that I think tried to serve his constituents well, yeah. uh, albeit from from a conservative viewpoint. But, uh, you, you know, I, 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 I can't think of many many bad things to say about uh, Senator Isaacson, and I can't think of anything bad to say about him that that does not involve disagreements on policy. Uh, that being said, I'm 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 very sorry for his uh, health trouble. Uh, I wish him well in the future, and uh, I, I think Georgia is 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 losing a a, a good decent man. Yes, um, I never voted for him, but I will say that he was always seemingly better than who he would be compared to. I think he replaced Newt Gingrich in Congress, and he was a better Republican than him. And then he's a better U.S. Senator than David Perdue, in my opinion, and was better than Saxby Chambliss. Um, He did um, at least have a better tone about the way he went about voting probably about 95 percent of the time the Republican Party line. Um, and then would, uh, you know, call out some things like, you know, pretty recently when John McCain was attacked, um, he defended uh, John McCain when he was attacked by the Republicans, uh, some of the more hardline right wing like, you know, Donald Trump. Um, so that's, uh, I guess, kind of where he gets more respect from the other side mm-hmm. of the aisle here in the state. Um, mm-hmm. But now let's get to the, the logistics of this thing. He um vacates the seat it's now an open seat so let's start here um we rated that um uh field running for re-election seat of david Perdue somewhere like maybe the fifth sixth best target last week when we kind of did our roadmap and we had no idea this would happen um if we say this is like say the fifth best target now where does this open seat rank tim Ooh. Uh, well, obviously, since it's open, uh, we would have to rate it a slot or two higher. Uh, this is going to be – Georgia is suddenly, because it's got two Senate races going on at the same time, it's going to be the most watched uh, state Senate-wise probably on election night. Uh, even though they are doing each race differently. So I, I'm going to say uh, we we got to, just because it's an open seat, rank it, oh, one or two spots higher than than uh, Senator Perdue's seat. Wouldn't you agree with that, Catherine? Yes, I definitely agree with that. I think it's going to have a lot of – get a lot of attention. I, I'm just curious um, – do we know how it's going to – is it going to be a jungle primary on November? It is. It is. So, okay. It's going to be interesting to see uh-huh. how that works, how that turns out. And will – how will it be – how will it be? Um, I guess just because there's an incumbent, so that incumbent will be in the other seat that will be Purdue and then – that's you know, the, the governor the one. governor can appoint somebody, but 
it, and they could go three or four different ways on who the governor decides to appoint. It could be a placeholder. It could be a heavyweight that they want to use to hold the seat. Or he could throw the dice and put put an up-and-comer in the seat that nobody's ever heard of. That being said, that person will still have to appear on the ballot in a jungle-type primary or if nobody gets 50%, then the runoff would be the following January, right after the first of the year. So Okay, well, if he appoints someone, will they be uh, considered an incumbent on that ballot? I don't know if they will hmm. put the name, uh, if they will put the INC beside them or not. I, I do not know how that works. And this type of thing, because, uh, you know, it's, it's not every day that we get a jungle primary on our ballot like this, uh, especially one that would feature an appointed, you know, placeholder to the seat. Do, do you know, right. Dave? I, I know this is fascinating, and it, it's kind of scary. And I'll go ahead and tell you this: I would say I would rank this like if, if um, you know, the other seat's five, then now this one's five A, and it's five B. If together they create enough juice that they move one up, they become four A and four B. Because I read something this past week that not since 1966 has um, a Two Senate seats that have on the same ballot line uh, split. Ernest Hollings won in South Carolina as a Democrat, and Strom Thurmond won as a Republican in South Carolina. And that was a party switching Strom Thurmond. Mm-hmm. So that was a little bit different. And before that, I don't know how many years you have to go back. I mean, there's not been a lot of these things, but typically they go together. Minnesota with Amy Klobuchar and the other, I believe it's Tina Smith maybe. It's the other uh, senator from Minnesota. They went together. Barbara Boxer and Diane Feinstein, they came in together. Um, the, these of these things are pairs. And so it's going to be kind of interesting to see, although this jungle primary, like I'm going to throw a conjecture situation out there for you. Let's say Brian Kemp uh, appoints a more moderate candidate to hold this seat. The Tea Party says, no, no, we want somebody that blows up stuff and – you know, wants to take a flamethrower to tax regulations, blah, 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 that same crap we saw on the governor's primary. And those are the two candidates on the Republican side. And let's say this Senate seat becomes a Georgia version of the presidential race and 17 candidates run and nobody's getting more than 20% of the vote like Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren does right now. What mm-hmm. if you had a situation where the the governor's appointed candidate comes in strong with uh, 30% of the vote, 28% of the vote, and then this flamethrower Tea Partier gets 20% of the vote, and no Democrat gets more than uh, 17% of the vote, and in that jungle primary, let's say you add up all the Democrats and it's still like 48% of the vote, but then um, the top two candidates, because there's only two Republicans running, or one and two. What kind of mess would you have on your hands, Catherine? Well, that's what that's the that's what happens with the jungle primary. Happens all the time in California. Yeah. And I think Louisiana. 
But I have a question. <laughs> I have another okay. question. So whoever wins in the jungle primary and then if there's a runoff in the runoff, do they hold that seat for six years or just until No, Isaac they hold it un- they hold it until okay. the present term is out. So twenty twenty two. Okay. <laughs> So you better like to run, and you better like to uh, raise money. Yeah, to raise money. Uh, if, if you're appointed and you want to stay, you're going to run a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then that could impact uh, who is interested in this seat. Now, it's somebody's got to get appointed. Um, first off, Tim, do you think they appoint a placeholder? Yes or no? Uh, I won't run. I'll just serve the year and a half. Or year, whatever it is. Yeah, like I said, we got three directions that Kemp could go in. Choose the short-term placeholder. Uh, choose somebody that wants that they want to hold it and run again, or or choose a surprise n- newcomer. Okay. I am gonna go with option three. So surprise no, newcomer. Not, not the placeholder. So no to placeholder. No placeholder. No. Okay. No. Catherine, placeholder, yes or no? No. No. Uh, that's three no's. I, don't, I think he will find somebody that's going to run. Now, let's get into the who. Let's get into – let's left two people here. One is going to be you want to – like you're having to get paid by the Republican Party to – pick the best person that's going to hold this seat that can win in a tough year as as georgia turns more blue with demographic change can still hold that seat maybe look at age because you want somebody to hold it for let's say three terms uh that kind of thing and we'll do that side first uh catherine who is that person that could best hold it for the republicans chris carr attorney general and I've heard his name mentioned a lot. Yeah. Um, okay, Tim. Who do you, a, oh, go ahead and lay some meat on that bone. I have I have reasons for that. Um, you know, he was uh, he ran Johnny Isaacson's 2006 campaign or whatever it was. Then he was um, his chief of staff, and I, it would not surprise me if there was some kind of um, I don't want to say backroom deal, but if the suggestion was that um, Isaacson's retiring and as a gesture, they would select Chris Carr. Okay. Um, Tim, who's that candidate that uh, holds it for the Republicans? Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to say the same thing that, that, that Chris Carr is, is, is the placeholder. Oh, the placeholder? Okay. Place, like or, he, the, or he gets it and he runs and he has to run two times. No, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm thinking I'm thinking he he would be a little bit down the line to be the 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 heavyweight to hold it. I, I think we got to look at guys like Deal and uh, Sonny Purdue, uh, Austin Scott, Doug Collins, people like that uh, to be the heavyweight uh, to run. Okay, um, yeah, and, and I'll tell you this: if they just, if they were fearful, they could not hold this seat, uh, and they really needed to go. Like we got it, like like Georgia when um, Roy Barnes appointed 
Zell Miller, like, you know, the, the environment's getting tough. We got to hold it at all costs. That's when you get Nathan Dill involved. Now, if you say, mm-hmm. I think we can still hold this seat, and then we need to hold it down the road. We want to get somebody term after term. We want to expand our coalition. I'm going to throw a real wild card name out there. Um, Ashley Bell, former oh my head God, of the uh, College Democrats. But he has been an he's been a Republican for some time now, um, and, and he's big name in their circles. He's probably mm, close to forty. Um, African American um, would be somebody that would make the Republican Party look vastly different, and you know than it does now as uh, just a white male party. Um, I, I know they've mentioned some uh, uh, woman candidates as well, uh, but. Nobody to me would have that profile of being able to run and run and run as somebody younger like an Ashley Bell. Now, like I said, that's a wild card, a long shot, but it would be interesting uh, to say the least. Uh, Catherine, uh, I think you had some reaction to us. Tell us what you think. I'm just not a fan of Ashley Bell, and I'm not sure he has the um, what's the word? the you know strength or power base or um you know what's needed to you know run that race well in a jungle primary yeah and he may be somebody that would be very susceptible to that tea party candidate in a jungle primary he would be safer if he could get nominated and be the republican standard bearer and then against the democrat um tim your thoughts on on anything we've discussed here um i would not be shocked to see the governor go with a surprise newcomer. I, and a guy I was thinking about, and he's well thought of in Republican circles. I'm sure Catherine knows him very well from the 49th District, Butch Miller. He's very well thought of in the Republican Party. Uh, he's very closely aligned with the governor, which I think is something that would be very important to the governor. So he might pluck somebody like that out of the legislature, uh, despite the fact that he would really get some blowback from uh, probably some supporters of of uh, both Austin Scott and Doug Collins, who, you know, it's an open secret. Those two are looking to move up. But don't be surprised we shouldn't be dismissive of the fact that that the governor might do something like that what do you think yeah i've heard butch miller's name bandied around he seems a little older to still be in the legislature he's another white male from gainesville uh uh-huh. the republican party's heavy on those although ashley bell's in gainesville it's kind of like if, if the republican party has a farm team it must be based in Gainesville, Georgia, uh, with Nathan Dill, Casey Cagle, Butch Miller, Ashley Bell, and five more people I hadn't thought about. Um, they keep coming out of that one county, Hall County. Um, but, yeah, it, it's it, there's so many names. Um, you know, I, I would think 
that Tom Graves would be in that conversation, and he's younger and probably less controversial at this, at this point than Doug Collins. Doug Collins has kind of been acerbic and combative, and, and sure, a lot of the Trump folks love and, that. And that's exactly that why he would bill. have a shot at getting it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but you, uh, to me, you've got to look at this two ways. You, you sure you say in 2019, and probably for the next year or two, easy. That's how the Republican Party functions. But at some point, somebody has to be the long-term grown-up in the room and remember that they did the autopsy report in 2013, and their folks in their party that are consultants like Rick Wilson and like Mike Murphy and like Stuart Stevens that know that this party has to diversify. It needs more women. It needs more minorities. Or they're going to die. It's it's coming whether or not 2016 was some blip in the road where they they won and they had and they held on to their power longer than Trent said they would have. They're gonna have to do more things now. Is Brian Kemp the person smart enough to see the handwriting on the wall? I would be you know think that's no. a dubious fact. Um, well, let's discuss another facet of this thing. And let's say now, you know, and Catherine, it's funny, you said, I'm not a big fan of it. I'm like, Catherine, you're a good Democrat. You're not supposed to be a fan of these folks. So now let's <laughs> pick the Democrats, and, and let's pick the – we aren't going to find the Roy Moore because I don't think that – that's a, that's a one of a kind. They broke the mold, fortunately, uh, when they made Roy Moore. But let's pick that Roy Moore character uh, for Georgia Democrats to face. Um, Catherine, who, do you, who would that be? Oh boy! You mean who's the who's the best candidate for us to face? Well, yes. I mean, and you best can't Republican. get a guy with a "will work for food" sign off the corner. I mean, it's you know, let's do a not known no. commodity. <laughs> I'd say I'd say it's probably Newt Gingrich. Uh-huh. You stole mine, Catherine. <laughs> of all the names that have been floated, I mean, uh, of all the names that have been floated, he's probably the least likable guy. I mean, even you know, Republicans don't like him that much. You know, so that would be my just off the top. I haven't really thought about that, but that would be my yes. Um, and and I'll piggyback on that before Tim goes. Can you imagine the money that would be raised? I mean, we thought Amy McGrath raised some money off of Mitch McConnell. The money that Georgia could raise if we were running to defeat. Newt Gingrich, and I do believe there could be uh, – Donald Trump could give a call to Brian Kemp and say, you know, Newt's been my boy since day one. Um, you know, he defended me on the Fox News channel back when I was at 5% in the polls, and everybody thought there was no way I could win. Uh, Newt's been defending me, so um, you you got to put The Newt only in thing the is Senate. I'm not sure – I don't think he lives here anymore. That's the only thing. I think he lives well, in D.C. Then I wonder, Virginia. Okay, if, but here's the trick on that. If you have to live in the state for a calendar year, and it may be since – it may be two years or it may be the length of the term. I do not know that. But if it's a year from when you're on that jungle primary ballot, um, I'm pretty sure he could call two men in a truck um, between now and the first Tuesday of November because all he's got to do is be – if he had to be when he ran um, – because uh, he had a little while because Johnny Isaacson doesn't resign yeah, until um, December. Oh, yeah. Well, 
Yeah. Tim, you may know a little bit about that, and you've got to give us your um, dream name. Yeah, well, my my name is going to be Collins. You you talk about somebody that that Democrats would love to hate in a hurry that would get us ready to uh, bite a twenty penny nail in half. Uh, he he starts his stuff, uh, the 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 real pro stuff, uh, Trump stuff, which he would uh, on steroids. Uh, he, he is definitely my guy to 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 be the one that everybody's gonna love to hate. I mean, he's he's not, you know, he doesn't have the deficiencies of a Roy Moore, but but he is gonna draw the ire of his opponents. Uh, just by being who he is. Yeah. Well, now let's look at the other part of this, um, the Democrats. Now, you have a, um open seat. You have to run against David Perdue. You, you probably kind of need a ticket in some ways. And you have the presidential candidate that will sort of be on the ticket too, although there's no way to predict that. Um, first off, let's just kind of take care of this part. You have three candidates in the Democratic primary. You have Teresa Tomlinson, Sarah Riggs-Amico, and um, Ted Terry. Do any of the three decide to switch over, or do they stay facing David Perdue? What do you think, Catherine? I think they stay facing David Perdue. Okay. Tim? Oh. Uh, yeah, I think they're going to stay where they are, too, especially Amico. Let me ask y'all this. Do you reckon now she wishes that she had postponed her announcement by one day? To give herself some options, absolutely right. right. Even if she doesn't switch, she would have had options. Well, uh, yep. somebody that we're excited to have on the show, and we're not going to discuss uh, this Georgia Senate seat with him unless he wants to. Uh, welcome back to the Kudzu Vibe, Mr. Elliot Morris. Howdy, y'all. How's it going? Oh, good to have you back All on. Right. Yes. Um, well, Elliot, since you've been on the Kudzu Vine, uh, you kind of started so, with some new uh, lines of work, if you will. I think you've actually uh, changed over to a blog, and you've been writing with the uh, doing some projects with The Economist. First, just tell us about what's going on with you career and political-wise. Yeah, sure. So I'm a data journalist for The Economist. You'll have to also excuse my sickness. That's sort of part of the grind, I think, of working in Washington, D.C. during the fall. Um, And we're just doing a lot of work on uh, analyzing polling in the 2020 Democratic primary. We've been doing a lot of work on analyzing what different demographic change would mean for America. And we're really excited for what 2020 will have in store with us. You know, we're... um, Doing a lot of really cool projects. Can't tell you all about them right now, but I'm sure y'all will be excited for them. Yes. Well, one that we do know about because it's public knowledge. I, I was listening to another friend of the show, uh, Chris Higgins, who does the 2020 election ride home. He said, and it was funny, we had actually booked you to come on the show, and he goes, um, Elliot Morris. Of the Crosstab has got a new project going on with The Economist, and he talks about how you can, you know, disaggregate the data, and it's, you know, better than, and I don't want to name one of your competitors, but he said one that's been around for many cycles as far as the averager of polls, and he said it's so much more useful than that tool 
because she can do this, that, and the other. And I looked at it, and I was like, wow, it is amazing. Chris uh, really told the truth on what you got going. Tell us about that project with presidential polls and The Economist. Mm, are, are you referring to uh, this project we did on whether, you know, exploring what would happen in 2016 if everybody voted? No, no, it's uh, where the and he mentioned your name. It was the where the polling data. Um, you you slide it around and you can actually take it and see, you know, how college educated voters vote in the presidential primary. It was based on polling and how um, sure okay. African Americans vote and that kind of thing. Right. Oh yeah. Sorry. So well, well, we think um, you know. Well, first off, I think I think our competitors will have some of their own polling averaging apps soon, and I expect that it will be you know. Just as good as ours, if not better, they're they're good too. Um, but we're our philosophy is that we can't really learn enough about the electorate if we're only looking at top line vote intention. This is especially the case for presidential primary elections. And so we want to know how do different demographics vote? How are you know black voters aligned with? Joe Biden, how much do college-educated whites prefer Elizabeth Warren to, you know, non-college-educated whites who prefer Bernie Sanders? And we think that this offers us a lens into um, the American electorate that others, just like us, don't have right now. And, you know, part of this is because we have a great polling partnership with YouGov, a polling firm uh, based out of America. It also operates in the U.K., um, and it gives us data every week on how all of these demographics uh, will vote or are intending to vote now in the 2020 primary. And uh, that is an incredible resource, and we're you know, incredibly happy to be able to share that with, with all the economist readers. Yes. Well, I've slid it around and looked at it. We analyzed it last week on the show, uh, getting ready for you to come on. Um, but let me ask you one more question. I'm going to pass it to Catherine and Tim. Um of the, the different ways you can slide it, um, what did you find to be the most interesting finding as far as, like, that's unexpected? I didn't expect to see voters feel this way about a candidate, but yet that way about a candidate. Yeah, this is really interesting. So you'll find out if you go in and you slide all the crosstabs around that female voters are, also, are, are actually more inclined to vote for Joe Biden than male voters. And this is true even – or younger females who we think might be like uh, more woke, more you know, more feminist, more progressive, or something to steer them away from the gaff-prone former vice president of the United States. Um, and I actually don't know what this is driven by yet. We haven't really dug into it, but I suspect it's due to the sort of Bernie bro, Andrew Yang dude phenomenon, whereby the male voters in the Democratic primary have really been. Um, you know, loyal to Bernie Sanders and Andrew Yang and some of the other candidates, um, and, and so Joe Biden really just gets the rest. But that's interesting, and I don't think people expect it. Yes, that is an interesting finding. Well, I'm going to pass it over to Catherine, and then she'll pass it to Tim, and then we'll bring it back to me later on. Catherine? Sure. Hey, thanks Thanks for being with us tonight, Elliot, especially on a holiday weekend. We uh, appreciate mm-hmm. your time. Um, I was interested, I was looking at the um, polling, the the aggregate, one of the charts that you had on, I don't know, I can't remember if it was on your blog or on The Economist, but I was um, surprised, or uh, I don't know if surprised is the word, but interested to see that um, the only person who seems to be increasing support is Elizabeth Warren. Everyone else is sort of 
going down. And I wondered if you had an explanation for that, or if it's just and just like that's just the way the way um, we go. Like we we you know like someone for a while, and then we change our minds, and we like somebody else, and it's really not. There's really no explanation for it. Yeah, it's a really great question. Um, so I sort of have this little saying that every bounce in polling is a bounce, not a bump, until it really is a bump. Um, and by that I mean that, right to echo what you're saying, um, support for candidates does wax and wane over time. We saw this with Kamala Harris, who got a pretty big bounce in polls after the first debate where she attacked Joe Biden for his stance on busing, um, or I guess his former stance on busing. And uh, and then she's back down basically to where she started in, in May and June, or even you know perhaps lower than that. Uh, you're talking about Elizabeth Warren, who has risen, I think, in our aggregate from about five percent in January to eighteen percent today. Could be as high as twenty percent or as low as fifteen if you you know factor in the margin of error. Um, and this uh, this is interesting to parse out. I've used it to say that I think people are being too bearish on Elizabeth Warren. I think you know she is the only candidate who has shown the ability to convert a lot of the supporters for other candidates into her lane. Um, and while some of her momentum has seemed to slow down in recent weeks, I think this shows that, you know, over time, Democratic primary voters have realized that whatever controversy she had from this you know, Native American debacle or that, you know, she released her DNA test in December um, to concerns over her being a career woman have sort of fallen by the wayside, and she's now the most um, favorable candidate in the primary, and in our numbers with YouGov, 50% of Democratic voters say they might vote for her, they're considering voting for her, whereas 48% say that for Joe Biden, and just 39% say that for Bernie Sanders. So she does have some clear strength, and she has a lot of room to grow. Very interesting. Okay, I'm going to pass it to Tim now. I may have another question for you coming back around. Thank you. Sure, happy. Oh, good evening, Mr. Morris. Thank you for being with us again tonight. Uh, just right out of the gate, I want I want to ask this: Are the voters engaged yet, or are we looking at basically soft support in these polls? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, I'm not actually sure how to answer that. I don't have our YouGov numbers in front of me, but what I would say is that. You know, there's, a, there's a, an obvious tendency for voters to tune in over the course of a campaign, right? You're, you're hinting at this by calling it soft or hard support. Um, and, and I would expect the primary to be more fluid as we move forward and as we get closer to Iowa and as voters realize or inform their opinions about which candidates may or may not be viable going forward. And so I think I'll use Beto O'Rourke is a good example here. He was polling in um, third percent or, or third place, depending on how you cut it. Probably you know closer to fourth um, back in March. And I think as he's campaigned, he's reassured some voters' concerns that he may not be the most substance-based candidate. And I don't necessarily agree with this criticism, but I think it's the one that gets touted out in media coverage a lot, um, and he's declined in support over time. And something similar may be happening to Pete Buttigieg right now, who was, again, maybe in third or fourth in April and has decreased to about 
5% in, in, in fifth place today. I mean, so voters, to get back to your point, are, are clearly um, willing to change their minds at this point in the primary. And so we shouldn't, we certainly should not think that everyone who says they are favoring Joe Biden right now is actually going to vote for him. Um, and we should expect these things to change over time. So I guess I'd say, to sum up, it's closer to soft support than hard support, but it's really hard to tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we're looking at these, this pool of voters, you, you were on record recently as saying that the political center is, quote, a lonely place to be. Why, why is that? Is it shrinking yeah, it is, it is shrinking. So if we if we take the political center to mean um, to mean political moderates, and uh, and I'll get to a few other definitions in a sec. But if we take it to mean political moderates, not liberals or uh-huh. conservatives, then it's shrinking even within the Democratic Party. It's only about forty percent, I think, of Democrats today. Um, liberals make up about half the party, where I think they made up about twenty percent a few decades ago. Um, and, and if we take another definition of um, of the center to mean people who identify as peer independents, that's an independent that doesn't lean toward either Democrats or Republicans, we're really only talking about 5 to 10 percent of the electorate. Um, so the center, I, I, think, I think that's where it speaks for itself. There's just not a lot of voters in the center. Mm. Uh, and I want to ask you about – one candidate now, and that one candidate is Donald Trump, because you've talked about this some already. Don, Donald Trump, I, I agree with you, will surely make immigration a front and center issue in 2020. Will that help him? Will it hurt him? Or will it do both? I guess I guess it'll do a little bit of both, right? Um Mm-hmm. You know, he his, his his stances on immigration policy are opposed by about sixty to sixty-five percent of voters. That includes mm-hmm. the wall. That includes restrictionist reform. And it's hard for it would be hard for anyone to convince me that somebody who only had the support of thirty-five to forty percent of the voters, um, you know, could could really benefit from taking those controversial stances. And uh, mm-hmm. so, so I, I think he's unpopular. I think he has an uphill battle to re-election. I think if he makes the whole thing, if he makes the whole elect, election about his stances that are unpopular, then he's going to have an even worse time than he is today. Yeah, now, but hasn't he really boxed himself in a corner because of things like saying I am going to build that wall and we're going to do it before my second term, doesn't he really have to now be in a position where he has to follow through on that just to you know gin his base up? Yeah, the the political science says that voters, to the extent that they care about uh, political policies issues only uh-huh. really care about what their leaders tell them to care about. You know, this is not a hard and fast rule. There are lots of people who have ride or die positions on a lot of policies. Abortion is, is a good example where people mm-hmm. keep their opinions and change their loyalties 
But with Donald Trump, we really see the reverse of that, where people change their opinions and keep their loyalties. And I think I, – I don't think Donald Trump is going to be hurt by the fact that he hasn't built the wall yet. I think he's built 50 miles maybe of fencing by, by last reporting. Um, and I, I think a, a conservative primary challenger like a Joe Walsh could make the case to voters that that means that Trump has not followed through on his promises, but at the end of the day, the people who want the wall are still going to vote for Donald Trump, and the people who don't want it are going to vote for whichever nominee Democrats pick. All right. And uh, thank you for that. And with that, I'm going to pass it to David. David? Yes. Well, Elliot, I know you can't tell us about all these projects, but you mentioned uh, when we started talking about your project that uh, you've analyzed if all voters or more voters uh, would have voted in 2016, what the results would have been. Uh, Tell us about that. Yeah, sure. So so we conducted this big study, and and, uh, we – you, to use your word earlier, we disaggregated public opinion data from these large surveys, you know, 60,000 Americans, um, to answer the question of how every American would have voted if they actually did. And we found that Democrats have quite a bit of upside in mobilizing Americans because there are so many um, non-whites and low-income Americans who don't vote today that if they were to vote would likely swing the Electoral College to, to Democrats' favor. Um, but there is there is one thing to keep in mind when we talk about these findings, especially in the sort of top-line, surface-level way we're talking about it now, which is that if everybody did vote, the landscape of American politics would look fundamentally different because the Republican Party would be forced to take newer, more mainstream positions on things like the border wall, things like abortion, things like welfare, to win over more voters or else they would just go extinct. So, so we, we can say that if 2016 were re-ran with everybody, then Hillary Clinton would have won. We can't really say that in 20 years, if we make voting compulsory, that, that you know, American politics would look um, the way it does today if everyone would vote. Does that make sense? So we, we can't really project, but we can say that Democrats have an upside in turning out voters. Yes, and and to me it's kind of a uh, you look at it so, so a few different ways. One, if you talk about voter ID laws, people actually want to vote, and it's become harder or impossible for them. Or if you you talk about people that have you know served their time and they're now been out of prison and, and their debt society's been paid and they can't vote in certain states because of you know old past felony convictions. I mean. That's kind of out of their control. Now, if they just didn't show up at the ballot box, then some of this is kind of, you know, candy and nuts. If ifs and buts were candy and nuts, what a wonderful Mm. Christmas it would be. And so to me, you kind of look at it both ways because even though I want everybody to show up and vote, and I show up and vote, I understand at the end of the day they got to show up and vote uh, if they're able to and they don't have unnecessary obstacles in their way. How much of a divide is there when you found between – you know, folks in Florida would like to vote, but they have those convictions in the past, or these voter ID laws that are really restricting a lot of older voters, probably more than they even are restricting minority voters, um, and just people not showing up. Mm. Well, I'm not sure about the Democrat or the demographics of uh, voter ID disenfranchisement. I know 
that in Florida, uh, the the impacts on Democratic vote share for reenfranchising the felon population um, is significant, and it's above zero, but it's likely not as large as we think because a lot of those people, you know, that are in prison are in communities, they're in social circles that likely wouldn't push them to vote even if they could. Um, and this goes, you know, this cuts the same way, I guess, for older people um, who, who who you say are being disenfranchised, but I'm not sure about that. Um, and and for especially minority com- communities in southern states like Georgia, where um, you know voter ID laws are purported to have disparate impacts on minorities, though the social science really is not coming down on this debate either way. Um, and you know, so so there are multiple factors for why they might not turn out, and it could be that they're they don't have voter ID, but it also might be that they're just not in social circles that that vote like like I'm thinking that you and I are um but you know there's also there's a bit of laziness in the electorate there's lots of college educated people especially whites who could vote and they don't um though perhaps we're seeing that turn around because college educated suburbanites in 2018 were certainly the group that propelled democrats to victory in the house and so if uh, if democrats are looking for an upside they likely have an upside there Yes. Well, and I just know that people are more, more, much more likely if they get older to stop driving. People of all races will drive, um, but then when people get older, and we've seen you know, even sitting politicians like the Republican senator from uh, North Carolina showed up and was like, "Oh, I have to have voter ID," and um, and then we have you know people that fought World War II, they they no longer have photo IDs because they don't drive anymore, and it's just ridiculous that we're disenfranchising you know these. Heroes, in many cases, just because they're elderly and and uh, don't have it, because the Republican Party, in many cases, wants to try to disenfranchise voters of color to help them win. It's kind of an unintended consequence, I think. Um, Catherine, did you say you had another question for Elliot? Well, I'd like to talk a little bit more about this this study. I think it's really interesting. Were there any? Um, big surprises that you discovered as far as um, I mean I, I'm, I'm, I'm always like I wish everybody would vote because I think I've always uh-huh. thought that Democrats would prevail if everybody voted um, yeah. but were there any surprises that you uh, were uh, unexpected results that you saw well I emphasize this point that Hillary Clinton would have won um, if everyone voted but it's not actually a slam dunk contest. So if we think about this in terms of probability, maybe in terms of forecasting the election outcome, um, Hillary Clinton's chance of winning the election if everyone voted is not actually 100% because though every because you know the computer says, okay, let's make everybody vote, but it doesn't actually know for a fact which way they're going to vote. It only assigns them a probability. Right. So yeah. this is all to say um, that non-college white populations, especially in the Midwest, make up quite a large amount of voters. And I think lots of people forget just how many non-college whites live in rural America um, and that this population is also not extremely motivated to go to the ballot box. Um, education is a correlate of voting. So, you know, if, when you go to university, you sort of emphasize your civic responsibility, I think, to go to the polls and 
lots of Americans, in fact, the majority of Americans just don't have that motivation. So the surprising thing is that if everyone were to vote, the election is not a slam dunk for Democrats. And in fact, there are uh, the swing states are still pretty swinging because there are lots of uh, uneducated whites out there that are very loyal to the Republican Party. Okay. Yep. Tim, anything else from you? Uh, no, sir. I'm good. Okay. Well, Elliot, before you leave us tonight, um, I know, like I said, you can't get into some of those other exciting projects. We can't wait to see. But if people want to read your blog or you on social media or anywhere else, feel free to share that with our listeners. Sure. Well, I'm uh, I'm too often on Twitter at G Elliot Morris. That's two L's and two T's. Um, and I post most of my work for both my blog, which is more of a personal blog, not a sort of consumer-based blog now, and my work for The Economist, which is, of course, my day job that takes all of my day responsibilities and most of my good ideas away from me now. Um, and uh, and they can follow an email newsletter I have to keep them updated at thecrosstab.com, which is, which is my blog. Yes, sir. Well, thanks for all the great information, and keep up the great work so we can keep getting research for the show, and hope when you uh, release some of these things, we can have you on again. All righty, yeah. Thanks very much, you all. Um, call me back. Thank you. Time. I'm happy to do it. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. All right. Thank all right, you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was G. Elliot Morris, like you said, of The Economist, one of the top data researchers uh, they have for politics, maybe probably the top for po- the politics area. Um, so great to have him on with his work. And uh, that slider is pretty amazing when you can, you know, uh, break the data down. Well, guys, let's get back into this lead topic we never finished, uh, the Democrats. What We know that now that uh, some of these folks might want to switch, but they might not switch. We haven't even talked about this open seat and all the new candidates that may jump in, because there's two or three candidates that may have, you know, thought about running against David Perdue. I guess first off, immediately everybody said, well, is Stacey Abrams going to run now that this is an open seat? Because this is, you know, a slightly better opportunity uh, than running against David Perdue. And she pretty quickly said, no, I'm still not interested. Um, I think it was fair to ask her, and it's fair for her still not to be interested. Um so, Catherine, who's next? Oh, there's there's just so many potential people that people are talking about. You know, I heard Jason Carter's name come up. I've heard uh, Michelle Nunn has expressed some interest. But I'm my uh, my favorite candidate, who I don't think anybody has spoken to about it, but. I would like to see Scott Holcomb run. Uh, He's a state representative. He has been for, I think, four terms. Uh, He's a former JAG officer. Great guy. Uh, Very, um, very serious. And, I I mean, I think he's been on the show before. If not, we all know him. Um, I would love to see him uh, run. I kind of doubt he would because he's got a – at least one young child, and I, I think he's lived in D.C. before. He's probably not that keen on it, but I would really like to see him run. I think he'd be a good candidate. He's got he's gotten national attention. He's been on Samantha B. and he's, uh, you know, been very vocal and um, really great on the rape kit 
policies, uh, both in Georgia, and he's been sort of a national spokesperson for it too. So I think he's got a lot of uh, a lot of good ideas. I think he's, like I said, I think he's very serious. He's always worked well with um, both Democrats and Republicans. He's well liked. So I'd love to see him run. If you're listening, yes, to that, I, please run. And I haven't seen anything mentioned this time, but oh, I have seen it uh, other other places. So it's not like um, he doesn't have that underneath profile among the folks in the know. Um, uh, Tim, thoughts on who might run and who would be interesting? Well, um, I really do think now that uh, someone like Ossoff might might jump in. Uh, there's been talk again about uh, Michelle Nunn and about our friend Mr. Carter perhaps getting back in. Uh, I always felt that uh, that Jason probably ran in the wrong year uh, and could still be a, a promising candidate. So if you're listening, Jason, just just give 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 the lay of the land a look. Uh, and, and you know, I, I just hope that our candidate is one that can raise a bunch of money because they're they're going to need a bunch of money. And another thing that I really think we have to be careful about here, and I think you alluded to it some, um, David, and that's the fact that the Republicans might attempt to clear the field. Uh, put a strong person into the seat to start with and see if one Republican's going to be running against, you know, 10 Democrats or something like that. But I figure the more Democrats that run, obviously, the less chance we have of making any runoff. Uh, well, and I think if it's if it's just one strong Republican – you may have that person get 40 and then a bunch of Democrats divide up the vote, but you still get the runoff at the end of the day. It's if that there's just two Republicans with power bases and you get splintered eight bazillion ways. That's, your, that's the only scenario for a double Republican runoff, I think. Um, so, so, so it's, I mean, it, it, would, it would almost be, I, I would say, impossible to plan from Brian Kemp. Because uh, his plan would be just pick one strong person, and that's their guy or lady or woman uh, uh-huh. the whole time. Um, you know, so um, – but but let's – I'll get into some of these candidates. Uh, for instance, Catherine, I agree I like Scott Holcomb a whole lot better than, than I like, say, John Ossoff. I, I'm just not that excited about his candidacy. I, th- I think somebody like Scott Holcomb has much more of a life he's lived and some experiences to go with. Um, I, Tim, I agree. Jason Carter, he ran against Nathan Deal. When Nathan Deal was running for your election, is a pretty popular incumbent governor that had done some things like judicial reform and brought the movie industry to Georgia. So he wasn't a very good target. Um, and sometimes that's why it's important to know your um, landscape. And so Jason Carter shouldn't be dismissed as a non-valuable candidate. He could still run, and he's, he has a story to tell. I think his Peace Corps work uh, is very interesting and a great narrative and gives him a different perspective and really sets him up nicely for federal office because federal senators and congressmen and congresswomen, they work 
with international issues. So be, living outside of the borders of the United States is not a bad thing in that office. Uh, also, he served in public office, um, you know, as a state senator for a while, and so so that's good too. Um, I still would like to see Nakima Williams, uh, head of the Democratic Party of Georgia. I think we can find somebody to be head of the Democratic Party of Georgia. I'd love to see her run for a big office, and why not this U.S. Senate seat? I may be one of the few people, um, in as far as Democrats in Georgia, that in many ways thinks Nakima Williams could be superior to Stacey Abrams. Um, that may be unpopular. Maybe there's a few me and a few people in the Williams family that think that, but I do. Um, and so I'd like to see Nakima Williams consider this race strongly. Um, but but I know that she may have other ideas in mind. She may feel she can't leave um, this uh, you know the party w- without a leader. But I really do feel we could find somebody to fill that spot because uh, candidates to put their names on the ballot against everybody to me are more valuable than people to run um, the party offices because you can get any old body like me to, to, to serve in party leadership positions. You need real real people to um, face the voters sometimes. Um, Catherine, you know Nakima Williams. You probably know her closer than the other two of us. Um, how strong a candidate do you think she would be if she decided to run? Oh, I think she'd be a great candidate. I just I'm not sure that uh, this is the right time for her. I know she's got a lot going on. She's serving as a as a state senator. She's leading the party, and she's also got a real gig, a real job. Um, so I'm not sure it's the right time for her. I I believe that she has her sights on uh, something different uh, in the future. Uh, so I'm not. I mean, I don't know that for sure. I haven't spoken to her about it, but um, so. I mean, I think it would be. I think she would be a great candidate. She's got uh, a lot of national connections. She's a great fundraiser. Um, she's very dynamic. She's very knowledgeable about issues and policy. And uh, I think she'd be an excellent candidate. Yes. Well, Tim, let me ask you about two other names: um, people that have held office. But are getting older. Um, I'm not sure their exact age, but they've been around a while, and they were mentioned in the list of candidates. One is uh, current DeKalb CEO Michael Thurman, former labor uh, commissioner, and has run for U.S. Senate before. And uh, the other being former Congressman John Barrow, who actually made the runoff last time for Secretary of State. Um, Do you think an older candidate would do well, or would it be better to go younger to possibly contrast with – um, some other things in the Republican Party. You know, I would like to see a new generation of, of uh, younger Democrats come along. Uh, you know, I, I, I love both of those men that that you uh, that you mentioned. I've heard them both speak many times. I've uh, talked to them both. Uh, they're they're both uh, very fine public servants, but I really would like to see a new generation uh, uh, come along uh, to go with the new generation of voters that's, that's uh, coming on with us. And somebody like Nakima Williams is is that next uh, generation of, of, of candidates, although I have to agree with Catherine that I believe that there's something else uh for for her uh in the future. 
Yes, and I don't know that this would preclude her because if she won it, this would be better. And if she lost it, I don't know that that would be held against her. She ran a really great race because Stacey Abrams lost, and I think people still see a future for her. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I don't know that that would um, be a problem. Uh, one final thought, and I'm going to get y'all's opinion on this final thought. I think the winner of all of this that came out this week, there's going to be a few winners. Brian Kip gets to appoint somebody. Whoever gets appointed is a winner. Everybody writes really great things about Johnny Isaacson. But I think Teresa Tomlinson's a winner now. Instead of three more candidates getting into her nomination race against um, David Perdue, um, now it's her and Ted Terry, and we're assuming Sarah Riggs Amico stays in the race. But doesn't she remain the front runner and now may not have to face as tough of a candidate for the nomination? Catherine, do you think she's a winner out of this? You know, I hadn't really thought about that, but I, I guess so. Um, yeah, I, I think I think she's in a probably in a better stead than she was before Isaacson made his announcement. I think that's a good point. Tim, is she a winner out of all this? Oh, absolutely she is. Uh, I think uh, she cements her status as, as front runner, and I, th- and I think uh, it goes back to what I said at the beginning. If there's a loser uh, in this on the Democratic side, it was just a, a, a one-day bad timing for Sarah Riggs Amico. Yeah, and we really – I think we discussed it some last week. Or actually, we, I don't know if we've even discussed on the air, but um, we'll see as things flesh out. But I'm not really sure how excited a lot of people are about her candidacy. Um, so, you know, we shall see. Maybe we're wrong. Maybe the polls will be totally different. And the polling on this ought to be fascinating because you're polling this race, uh, the open seat. You're polling the existing seat. You're running against David Perdue. There's a Republican side of things because if, if um, you know, Brian Kemp takes up to Christmas to appoint this seat, then there may be some polling that comes out on how unpopular would Doug Collins be? How would um, Republican voters react to a woman uh, being the standard bearer? Uh, how does Karen Handel, you know, look as the Senate uh, nominee as opposed to the sixth congr- congressional nominee? Um, just so many different angles here that can come out of this thing, and, and we'll be here to cover it all each and every Sunday. Till then, not everybody. Good night, Good night everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution with a strong and united America still.